Hi, I'm Jamin. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guests today are Dominique Carter, CEO, and Debbie Howard, Chairman of the Carter Group. Founded in 1989, the Carter Group is a strategic market research agency that has been helping clients engage with consumers and businesses in Japan. Prior to joining the Carter Group, Dominic served as the Managing Director of Japan for Miller Brown, and Debbie is the President Emeritus of the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan. Debbie, Dominic, thank you both for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thank you, Jamin. Absolutely. Thank you. Today, almost everyone has taken surveys, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for professional market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel, and research services, SurveyMonkey just launched a fast and easy way to collect market research feedback with seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customizable methodology, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your idea from your target market in a presentation-ready format. Oh, and by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, please visit surveymonkey.com slash market-research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market-research. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast comes from FuelCycle. This episode is brought to you by FuelCycle Ignition. Ignition is the agile insights platform that enables leaders and their teams to improve product, brand, customer, and employee experiences with no insights experience required. With FC Live virtual focus groups and interviews, an ad effectiveness solution, and survey automation capabilities, FuelCycle Ignition offers the only all-in-one Agile Insights ecosystem for supercharging the relationship between brands and their customers and serves the world's most innovative brands, including Google, Hulu, Tufts Health Plan, Kahart, and more. To learn how Ignition can take your research to the next level, visit FuelCycle.com. I rarely do two people at the same time for these podcasts because I like to do deep dives. So this is going to be a little bit of a unique episode format wise. We'll be asking a few less questions, but of course I expect there'll be a lot more kind of feedback across both of you, but I do want to take time in the beginning to get to know you a little bit and create some context for our audience and myself. And Debbie, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your parents, what they did and how that's impacted who you are today. Thank you so much, Jamin. My dad was a salesman. He was selling mainly construction equipment, and he was said to be one of the best salespeople anyone had ever seen. And that's from my uncle, who was the other best salesman we'd ever seen in our family. But it wasn't because my dad pushed or sold per se. In fact, I know for a fact that he wouldn't have been able to sell anything he didn't believe in, and he probably wouldn't have been able to sell anything to someone he didn't like or think was honorable. Rather, he seemed to have the ability to connect with people at a really deep personal level. And he really cared about what it was he was selling and who he was selling to. My mom was an executive secretary. She graduated from the well-known Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School in Boston. And she worked her way up in the 70s from an executive secretary position to be a purchasing agent 
for a Fortune 500 industrial company that specialized in building electronics components. And I think my mom and dad both inspired me and my sisters, mainly from a motivational and values viewpoint. We were raised to think we could do anything if we worked hard. And our parents showed us by example how that could be true. I like to say that my dad taught me how to dream and reach for the stars, while my mom taught me how to get things done. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Having an executive assistant as an executive will 3x your overall output because they're actually the arms of what your your office of what you're trying what you're right. trying to get done your father I, i've been saying this for a, quite a while and it's not like new to, for me but we build our t- terms of trade so that we can actually you know make money but at the end of the day we work with people that we like in organizations i think it's really interesting how both of your parents connected and have have raised you up that way but i am very interested to understand chamber of commerce is different than market research. So how did you how did you wind up making that transition? Oh, well, I didn't make a transition. I did it in addition to the market research. And in fact, I used the market research to gain publicity for myself and to help the organization to put in a customer satisfaction system at the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan and it's I I basically I started there in a really typical way. I became a committee chair of the marketing programs committee, and I was basically lining up speakers. And it was it was a natural extension of what I was doing in the market research area anyway. And then somebody invited me to, to run for the board. We do elected positions there at the ACCJ, and I was lucky enough to win. And so then I was on a 20-person Fortune 500 board in Tokyo because we have a real, I'd say, treasure trove of Fortune 500 companies headquartered in Tokyo. And so I was fortunate enough to be on the board. And then I was more and more active. I helped them put in the customer satisfaction system. And that gave me a lot of high-profile work and publicity for myself. And eventually I ran for vice president and then I became the first female president. And it, But it, I can chalk all that up to market research, actually. Does that make sense? Perfectly. Thank you so much for going into that detail. I, lo- I love that. Yeah. And, and, and if I may, Jamin, it, it actually expanded my ability to look at things from a wider viewpoint uh, when it comes to looking at clients' business. Because that organization happens to be super involved in advocacy between the U.S. and the Japanese governments. So I had never really done any advocacy work. I'd done some research projects that kind of touched on it, but it really got me into a different area that gave me some more sensitivity to what happens in the wider world. It's a significant challenge for me because I think about, so I'm part of the Boys and Girls Club of America and on their board. And you know, I'm not employing my core skills of market research in the way that you applied yours for the Chamber of Commerce. And I think that's a really good lesson for all of us to take away in the nonprofits that we are involved in inside the industry to, hey, apply our skills for the betterment of the organization. Absolutely. And it's going to have far-reaching implications for you. Dominique, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Same question. Tell us about your parents and how that's informed who you are today. Sure. Well, I mean, my father and I are really different people. Dad's an engineer and he's very 
scientific and he knows a whole lot of stuff and I don't know how he knows it, but like he's an engineer and I'm much more interested. I was always much more interested in, you know, English and the humanities and uh, that sort of thing. So I used to have to do things with him, like, you know, get him to teach me the whole quantitative methods course in one night before the exam and all of that. <laughs> um, so, I, so when I grew up with my father, I, I thought I'm never going to do what my father does. I have absolutely no interest in engineering. He always had a calculator on his desk and I was like, this is not for me. But one thing my father did when I was very young is he was offered a partnership in the firm where he worked. And I think my mother thought it wasn't a very good deal. So he started his own business and he worked out of home for the next 25 years. So I sort of always had that example of going out on your own and, you know, the sign up with your name on it. And that was something that I think sort of really affected me. And I sort of lived through all of the trials and tribulations that they had setting up that business. And I, I distinctly remember we, you know, mum had to stop buying name brand stuff at the supermarket and buy home brand stuff. And it was weird, the kind of like home brand kind of stuff that you, she could actually buy that you never knew existed. But, but dad, I think gave a really good example of sort of how to persist with a business. And it started very small. And then he ended up with you know, he was still quite small when he retired, but he had five, he had five people working for him. My mom, well, she, she had five children. So she had to spend most of her time looking after us, but she helped that out with the business. She used to type up, she had a typewriter and used to type up all of the uh, invoices. But it's fair to say that my mother was actually the business brains and, and my mother, like, you know, my mother is actually a really good businessman. And very insightful. So whenever I speak to my mother about anything that's going on in business, mum's always got a really, really interesting point of view and is usually right, which is very frustrating because you don't want your parents to be right. <laughs> so really, really interesting combination. Dad obviously had the professional practice and, and my mother was always in the background supporting and advising. And, you know, I think it was a really good combination. So I always felt, I always saw myself doing something like my father. Mothers are the CEO of the household. Absolutely. Yeah. People have yeah. said. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Sydney, Australia. How did you wind up in Japan? I know it's much closer than the US, but like, how did you wind up in Japan? Well, I was quite interested in Japan as a teenager. At that point, it was in the 80s and Japan was very, very very topical and had become very successful at that point. And in Australia at the time, it was quite controversial because they were making large investments in real estate and buying companies and so forth. I think it was a similar situation um, to the US, but Australia's a lot smaller. So I think Japan loomed very large for us. So it seemed like it would be a good idea if I studied Japanese at university. So when I graduated, I went to the University of New South Wales, which is one of the big state universities in Sydney. And I did a commerce degree with a major in marketing and Japanese studies. And somewhat uncreatively, I've ended up in Japan working in the marketing research area, been a bit of a linear thing in some ways. But yeah, so I studied Japanese at university. I wish I had studied more because when I made it to Japan, I couldn't understand what anyone was saying. <laughs> <laughs> Even at McDonald's, I was like, what, what did this lady just say to me? So yeah, I think learning the language takes a very long time. And it's actually still an ongoing process for me after more than 20 years. But 
I started working in a market research agency in Sydney called Young Campbell Hall Wheeler. And at the time, they were the largest independent agency in Australia. And I sort of forgot about Japan for about a year or so. And then it just so happened that they were mentoring a licensee of Miller Brown in, in Tokyo. They were going through the process of selling out their business to Miller Brown at the time. And, you know, I just put my hand up for that and said, I'd really like to be involved in that project at some point. And so they kind of planned it out for a couple of years. And I landed there at the beginning of 1999 to take over the, the licensee. When you landed there, the composition of the people that you worked for, were they Japanese or? You mean my, my employers? Yeah, uh, the people that you're, you're the team and the uh, the team that you were working with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, it was just me, and <laughs> they so they, thought, they 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 sent me. I was 24, and they it was. I remember my my boss saying to me, Mr. Hoare said to me, "Well, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can always come back." Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> so I thought that was kind of weird because people are usually saying, "Oh, it's going to be great," and yeah. uh, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna kick butt and all the rest of it. But anyway, so but I think that that was okay. It made me feel loved in a way. But they kind of yeah, they sent me up there, and I was joined by a lady who worked for the Miller Brown's licensee, and basically they threw me in there and said, "Okay, you know, get started." do whatever you've got to do. And so there were a couple of big accounts that needed rescuing at the time. But yeah, I was basically on my own. Yeah, you were obviously immersed in the culture, uh, which is very different than Australian, I imagine, from where you where yes. you grew up. Yes. How did it impact you being a minority? Oh, that was really interesting. It was the first time where I'd experienced kind of discrimination, I guess. You know, petty, petty discrimination, it's kind of sort of interesting. I mean, Japan's not too bad of a place in, in that respect, but definitely, you know, certainly at that time, there were much less foreigners around the place. So just the fact that you're foreign creates a bit of a, a difference in the energy there. And I, I was very sensitive to that. And of course, that's given me a lot more sensitivity to those issues in terms of how they play out in, our, in the society back home. So I thought that was kind of very interesting. Also, as a foreigner in Japan, you have to be very careful to pay respect to the culture that you're working in. And you know, I, when I first went to Japan, I thought I was there to teach everybody. And you know, I, I can't believe what I used to go around saying to people. But I guess when you're in your 20s, that's what you do. Um, you have it all figured out. Yeah, and and yeah, you know, I used to go into these companies and say, oh, "This is how advertising works," and you know, you you know, oh, you're doing it all wrong, and you definitely <laughs> and, and they were very polite. I'm impressed by how polite people were with me at that point. But yeah, so I think it kind of you sort of there was a point where I realised I really had to learn more than I was you know, more than sort of be trying to, to teach people all the time because it's a bit of a joke when you think about it. Not that I don't think I had nothing to offer, but you know what I mean. It's kind of like getting... I do. Yeah, the app, the how you go about that is very important. So our topic today is about conducting international research, and I think you know the underpinnings get to exactly what you just were talking about, which is we have to approach international research with a high degree of humility. Um, but what do you see 
as common mistakes that companies make when they're conducting research in other countries? I think it's you really need to listen to your local partner when they're giving you advice on the project. And so when you try to force things through that the local partner doesn't think are advisable, it can, it can cause problems. I mean, a classic example was when we tried to do mobile ethnography with doctors and we just didn't feel that this was going to work but for some and it it didn't work it was like doctors don't want anything to do with mobile ethnography or downloading an app or a webcam or something like that but they may be perfectly capable of doing it in america but in japan it's just kind of not something that they would do or they're just a little bit their relationship to technology is a bit different than the average doctors so but it can be, if you're asking for that work to be done, it can be very hard for you to imagine why this thing would be difficult. So that kind of advice that people give, I think is something that it's well worth listening to. And I think a lot of mistakes could be avoided. Mm. Debbie? Yeah, that's one of the, th- I mean, I the first thing I had written down was about applying your own standards and ways of being and doing to what is often an entirely different pattern or paradigm and, you know, expecting things to be the same as they are in your home country. That's a a real mistake. We're just simply not in Kansas anymore, Toto. You know, when we get into a foreign country and language is one thing. So we could talk about English speaking markets, like let's say a U.S. company going to Australia or Canada or England, but then we layer on the nuances of language. So operating in Japan, for example, or South Korea, or somewhere where they don't really speak much English, that's a whole different ballgame as well. I mean, any country is different from your own home country. And I think keeping an open mind, and I loved your phrasing of humility, approaching it with humility. That's really, really important because things are different. I remember the case that you said that you just mentioned, Dom. And I also remember a couple of examples that came to my mind when you mentioned that the doctors are definitely something that they're treated like gods in Japan, if you will. I mean, they're kind of gods in in any market, but definitely in Japan, there's a certain structure around interviewing them. The incentives are set, the recruiting time is set, the methodologies are often set. Another example that comes to my mind is just a simple exercise that we might do in the States or in Europe, let's call it the bar exercise, where you ask the respondent to go into a, imagine they've gone into a bar and start personifying the various people there with different brands. Like, I see that guy over there, he must be Glenn Fittich, right? And then you, then the moderator goes, why, why, why? And, and you, you sort of get a little more color around that and you get more color around the brand. In Japan, we couldn't do that bar exercise because they don't really have those kinds of bars the same way. And when we tried to do it with respondents when we were piloting it, they couldn't even get the concept of a bar in their head. And it became a real resistance point. So we changed it to like a an eating and drinking place. They call it an izakaya in Japan. And that made it a lot easier because that was something that people were more familiar with and they could relate to. 
Yeah, could I add something to to that, please? I think one of the you also have those those issues that we were just talking about, but also you have also in Japan you have sort of a there's an added job in interpretation that you need to do because Japan is what they call a high context culture, so a lot of communication is nonverbal, and a, a lot is communicated in what people don't say, and that can be really hard for outsiders to interpret. I've lived in Japan for over 20 years and it's hard for me to interpret still. And, you know, and I live with Japanese. It's something that when you're working in this country, you really need to have a good relationship with people who are local and native who can help you interpret what you're seeing because you might be seeing the same thing but arriving at quite different. So I think a very common mistake is really just taking things very literally, placing your own interpretations based on your own experience. A good example, we had, he shall remain nameless, but we had a very famous guy come and do a project with us a while ago. And he was working with the consumer in home, you know, creating his narrative around what they were thinking and feeling. And of course, my team were polite at the time because that was the way that it needed to be. Yeah, they came. I remember them distinctly coming back and telling me that they absolutely disagreed with every single conclusion that the guy had come up with. <laughs> and, and this is a really famous guy too. And I thought, oh, okay, well, was there really the opportunity to have that dialogue with him? You know, is this something that he was open to hearing the interpretation of the local team? And I think when clients are the good clients will kind of be much more open to, to sort of having dialogue even with the very young people on our team or more junior people because they've got some really really interesting perspectives so i think it's not a case of necessarily just taking everything that the local researcher says you know and taking it on board and not having your own input but i think there's a really great synthesis of kind of points of view and almost like you can get to these kind of transcendent insights where you have like the local insight and the you know and the, the foreign insight and it, it, then you can make some real progress but that's a big one for us is getting the real collaboration yeah exactly yeah because you're not you're just not going to get to the right story unless you do that so you did a great job of articulating some of the mistakes that are made coming into the market let's think a little bit about some of the solutions so let's say that you are in the u.s and you want to conduct research in another country like japan what are three tips that you would like to give yourself, right? <laughs> what are three tips that researchers should follow in order to have a successful project in another country? I have a, a few. I think keeping an open mind is extremely important. Remembering that nuance is everything and using local expertise I think we've already mentioned the importance of doing that. But I, I would like to also say one more. I know you asked for three, Jamin. But, well, there, I, and Dom will probably have a, a couple of others. So the, the fourth one I would say is to immerse yourself in the culture so that you can see something outside of the research facility. Like get out in the street, look at the retail environments, look at the homes, and try to understand how those differences might impact the way that people are living and feeling and reacting to the products and services that you're testing. 
Yeah, I, I think that's so important, Debbie. I remember we had, uh, we took basically the executive board of a very large company in the US on a safari about a year ago. And of course, you know, we felt that we were dealing with complete neophytes here. I and mean, we were to a large extent, but like that client had actually, off their own bat, had actually spent some time just walking around in advance and on previous trips and and that really added to their ability to empathize and that's really important one thing i'd add i I agree with everything debbie said one thing i would add in terms of tips is ask lots of questions and there's a lot of and this is especially true with japan like there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get spoken about and people don't tell you things unless you ask them so asking lots of questions, ask lots of questions about the process. Can I do the same thing that I do back home? How long are things going to take? You know, those sorts of questions are, are very, very important because the answers can be different than what you expect. And then also before you're working with a supplier too, I mean, I would ask around other people who have worked in that same market who they would recommend working with. So I get as much kind of in terms of the partner that you're working with, I get as much kind of informal feedback from people that you know in the industry about who they've worked with and who they've had a good experience with because, of course, you know, it can be a bit, there's a lot of trust that you have to place in people who are doing work for you in another country. You can't necessarily go in there and fix it. Are there Google groups or other resources that you would recommend for people that you know may not have a network that extends internationally? There are LinkedIn groups. I mean, I we haven't gone that far into them as a way of sort of getting this information. But when, for example, like when we're doing work in China, we will always ask people we know who's the best in the particular area that we want to do the project in. So it's not even a question often of like who's the best partner to work with. It could be a good partner that does very good consumer work. There could be one that does very good farmer work. So it's very, very much a case of who's the right partner down to if it's qual, like who's the best moderator for that type of work in that market that you know. So I think asking a lot of questions around your own colleagues maybe i've gone to people that i used to work with in the past old colleagues and and you know just sometimes reach out to people and you know and i will i'll field queries about other not just japan but other markets as well so who's a good person to work with in korea and australia and places like that so i think that kind of getting that sort of informal feedback on who's good to work with and what are they good at and what are they not so good at is much better than just broadcasting a a request for quotation and like getting back all the bids and choosing the cheapest one. (laughs) Which is how, let's be honest, most of the time it goes. You know, well, you've got to be good and on the money, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, but yeah, but I mean, obviously we prefer it if people would take a more holistic approach, but yeah. Yeah. I think the, the word of mouth referral is always the best way to get the best solution across the board, no matter what it is. If it's like somebody working on your car or somebody doing your market research, you want to go with a trusted advisor. I do want to dig in a little bit on tips. The immersion into the culture stood out to me as very interesting. The cereal partnership between General Mills and Nestle, which is the largest cereal company in the world, they sell cereal into 136 countries, I believe. The CEO 
takes time every quarter to visit consumers' homes and do on-site interviews. The reason is that he understands in context how they're using the cereal, which kind of seems, as I think about it, cereal, but cereal seems fairly simple, but it's actually relatively complex. And then that helps him connect and build empathy. And then that's something that, of course, has trickled down across that organization, which is fairly unique. How do you recommend your clients to, international clients, to become immersed in the culture given that they have a finite amount of time? We, I just one example, we had a cleaning company uh, approach us a few years ago. And the first thing that I said to them is, look, we're just going to do three quick in-homes like while you're here because they'd come to Tokyo just for a quick visit. I said to them, look, let, let's, let's get you into three homes ASAP because I knew that they will have absolutely no idea what they're dealing with here. You're dealing with smaller homes. The bathrooms are different to what they have. That's a European client. They're, they're very different to what they are in Europe. You know, much smaller. The materials that you're cleaning are different. The issues are different with mold and so forth. So just get them before we even have any conversation about developing a market for your product here, just we'll throw you in home. And that was a very informal thing, but I think it was very, very important for them to sort of have that kind of, in a sense, experience or shock to the system or, you know, whatever it was to sort of understand what they're dealing with. So if a client's completely new to the market, we'll generally see, it's rare that we won't recommend to them that they do some form of ethnographic immersion. So that can be in homes. It can be, you know, if it's a gaming client, you know, going to the gaming arcade or whatever it is, going shopping with people. But there's just a huge amount of contextual cues for conversation and just things that you see and hear and i'm not like saying focus groups are not fantastic in their context of course they are and we do focus groups a lot as well but just to sort of that kind of initial immersion those questions that you would never even know to ask come up a lot in those kinds of immersive sessions so you know when you know nothing you've really got to start with a very highly immersive exploratory stage. Otherwise, you know, you have clients come to you and say, well, we have, here's our product, let's do a survey. And I ne- I always tell clients, like, don't do quant off the bat right. in, in Japan. Like, for goodness sake, just don't, don't <laughs> do because, you know, whatever the results are, you're going to be locked into them. And you don't even know the parameters of the way that the consumer makes decisions in that category, what's important. So the idea of doing a survey is really crazy. And then also interpreting when you ask a Japanese person their likelihood to purchase something, the way that they answer those questions is quite different to Americans and Australians. It's actually quite different even to Chinese people very different so like just sort of understanding how those dynamics work and what the issues are if you're not so to sort of rush in and and sort of just implement the same survey with a few different attributes that you've been using in your home market you know to assess concepts for example is just not really yeah right yeah right so i am interested as you know how covid has impacted you specifically in japan japan's one of the luckier or uh, better equipped countries, I guess. They peaked around mid-April and then have been on a steady decline since in terms of 
new cases. Do you think that COVID is going to have a lasting impact on the ability to become immersed in a culture given a short-term framework? We're, look, we're doing a lot of, as you can imagine, we had to digitalize very quickly. Like un- until COVID came along, nobody wanted to do like focus groups right. Zoom and this sort of but of course, we had to convert very quickly to doing that. And we've been doing studies, you know, immersive studies. We, the way we do it is we courier out the iPad and the, and the iPhone or whatever it is, and everything's preloaded and nobody has to work out how to download or anything. And then, you know, so it's all very, it's all sort of very, you know, the stake is cut up into little squares for the respondent right. and they just have to. Which is probably a, a good practice in general. Yeah, well, no, absolutely, and, and it, it, we don't, and we've been doing this. You know, Debbie's worked on uh, projects. We're talking to over seventy-year-olds, and some of them are over eighty, aren't they, Debbie? Absolutely, and we had a little bit of trouble getting a couple of them on, but most of the time, it went really smoothly. And we've had people like literally walking around the house with the iPhone that we sent them, showing right. us the inside of their refrigerator, for example. And we had 15 clients in the so-called back room, the virtual back room, watching that. So it's been amazing to see, and our team has done such an amazing job. Um, I don't want to use the word pivot, but they did pivot. Well, I, I think the thing that kind of a surprise, maybe it shouldn't have surprised us, is just that we actually prefer digital in many ways. It's just that there are certain aspects of it that are just easier. And like for for in-home work, we have the problem of everybody in the client team wants to actually go to the home, which for a start is not, you know, obviously. Yeah, it's not, it's not, not a natural scenario, but also like people's homes are really small in Japan too. So if you're going out doing ethnography, like you've got to sit on the floor. You know, I've, I've sat in the corner of, of many a home here and moving around uncomfortably because yeah. I'm not crossing legs and that sort of thing. But like you have all of these people and then you've got to tell the client, well, no, you can't come to the, you actually can't come inside because it's too small. And then, you know, they're unhappy because sure. so, it, so digital, it solves a lot of those problems. I feel at the end of the day, though, we're still going to benefit from doing work face-to-face. Digital will become part of, it'll, it's more deeply sort of penetrated into our repertoire of things that we can offer people. But generally, I think that there are some things that happen in the face-to-face. You know, you may want to walk around the person's home or just there that there's, there's a more natural back and forth in the communication and I, I don't think it digital replaces I think it sort of augments and become a very valuable part of what we do I actually think your thesis is correct I, I believe it's the case that you know we're going to go back to a you know face-to-face whether it's focus groups or or what have you I even think that we're eventually going to get to a spot where we can be a little more it's going to feel less like air travel and more like a, used to a little more comfortable but um, in human intimate, maybe that's the right word for it. I do believe that because we've been forced to operate in a digital framework, especially for qualitative, for the very first time, it's going to open up the data to people that previously would not have had access to it. And I think that is going to be a bigger lever for insights, which is going to functionally create bigger impacts, which means, in my opinion, means the democratization of research should mean that it has more value 
organizationally. So I want to kind of end on this last question, and then we'll, then we'll move into the final personal. So do you have in just like a very brief story of a maybe a favorite story of how a foreign company leveraged research for a oversized or very positive return? And either one of you can answer that question. So we worked with, and Debbie will have, I think we can probably take it on together because I, I think Debbie's actually worked more on this account, of course. I think it's kind of like just a great example. So these people came to see us about five years ago and they were quite senior in the company and they, they were looking at their international expansion and they were looking at Japan and they came in and met us and we sat down and they said, well, you know, we're not really, we don't really think we need to do market research in Japan because, you know, we've got a really excellent product and, you know, we think that the consumer here is going to love it and we're very excited. And I have to admit, it sort of irritated me a bit because I knew that they didn't know anything at all. So, you know, I, I basically said to them, are you crazy? <laughs> like, every, you know, this is not the way that you, you're going to be successful doing it. And they were kind enough to sort of let me say that to them. And, and we started off doing our first project with them. And, of course, everything everything was wrong. Everything, like the product was wrong, the packaging was wrong, the positioning didn't work. Nobody got what was actually interesting about their product, the way it was presented or anything. So it was like a really, really juicy kind of market entry project because everything had to be fixed. And the market entry projects are pretty much my favorite type of project because everything's problem solving the whole time. So we ended up, you know, doing a bunch of projects for them, but even down to you know, reformulating their product because it's a skincare business and and Japanese skin is different. And I remember having these many, many conversations around, is it really different? Like, why is it different? And, and But they were great because, like, they just accepted that there's different cultural issues surrounding skin to start with, but that also there is a physical basis to the belief that skin is different, which meant stuff has to be reformulated. It needs to be tested. Absolutely. And they did have so many dimensions to their challenges in the market. And we were able to, you know, Japan is a very sophisticated and highly developed skincare and anti-aging market. You see products in the States here from Japan that have been very successful in the U.S. market. So this is a U.S. product going to Japan. We did desk research to study the market landscape and the competitive landscape. We did ethnography. We went into women's vanity areas, Jamin, and had them empty out and show us their skincare routines. They met us at the door with no makeup because we wanted to watch their skin cleansing routines as well, cleansing and toning and everything. So we did some really interesting work there. We did position, repositioning focus groups. We did these in-home product placements, as Dominic said, where we were testing for the sting, the sting level of the skincare products. And we definitely had some reformulation that had to take place packaging adaptations, social media listening, and at the end, a lot of messaging research to make sure that we were getting the brand 
laid down in the Japanese market in a way that was close to what they offered in their home market of the U.S. and their other international markets. But it couldn't be exactly the same because some of the words just didn't pour over to the Japanese market. So, No, yeah. I mean, and also in that category, skincare, it's a classic area where there's just really different cultural elements in Japan compared to what you'd see in the US. So if it's anti-aging, for example, like if, let's say, if the, if you promise in America that the, that the product will iron out your wrinkles in four weeks and you're going to look 20 years younger, everyone wants it yesterday. If you offer that in this market, people think they're going to die because they're going to get poisoned. They'll have they'll have a they'll, they'll have a smooth corpse for the funeral, right? Oh wow, it's too much. Yeah. So you're sort of dealing with you know situations in this culture where even your most basic assumptions of what works and what doesn't work. I mean, another example is we did work years ago for Australian beef in Japan, and Aussie beef is a really big brand, very successful. But their strategy was to start talking about iron content in beef. And this is this is like a given in Australian market for the past 35 years that beef has iron, so therefore it helps you uh, stay healthy, especially if you're a woman. We, we just couldn't, you can't get that message across here because it's just so different to what people's common sense is around eating where it's all about balance and you're not sort of up-weighting drastically upweighting different types of nutrients and, and whatever. So it's just kind of different. But we worked with that client too on their on the relaunch of their brand as well. It's another example. But we love those projects where you're really starting from knowing nothing and then you've got to work on adapting and it's a multi-stage process. It, it's the it's the product, it's the brand strategy, it's the communications. And you know, we'll bring copywriters into the back room focus group they didn't like that but you just try and fail and try and fail and try and fail until you succeed and, and that's what we were just talking about has just literally launched in japan in the last week and we're very proud of the work that we've done to get them ready for that great last question debbie i'll ask you first what is your personal motto i'm going to give you my personal motto for this year it's kind of a mantra intention attention no tension that's interesting. I really like that. Okay, Dominic. My motto has always been in this industry that we're here to give people a voice. So we, our role is to make sure that the consumer gets listened to, you know, and is able to affect decisions that affect them. My guests today have been Dominic Carter, CEO, and Debbie Howard, chairman of the Carter Group. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Dominic, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks, Dominic. Thank you, Jamin. Everybody else, if you found value, please take time, screen capture, share this episode. This is one of the uh, more enlightening episodes, especially if you are considering doing work in Japan or other countries. I think you'll find the lessons very applicable. Hope you have a fantastic rest of your day.